0: Um, I don't know if you've, you know, if you've all been around Eastgate for that long, but um, one of the things that's been changing around here recently is that we've been seeing a real increase um, in miracles and supernatural things happening, and um, particularly in the area of healing. But it's not only, not only in healing, we're seeing other things as well. So um, who was here last Sunday evening? Not many of you. I gather there was gold dust floating about last Sunday evening. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, we, we have had it here before, years ago, before we were actually in this building. But it's been some time since we've seen that. So that's, that's interesting, isn't it? And um, I, was, I was quite intrigued to hear that because um, over the last couple of weeks, you know, I've been thinking about my preaching this evening. And, um, and God started speaking to me about um, signs, wonders, miracles. So, I think, oh, there was a sign last week, wasn't there? That was interesting. And then he said to me, signs, wonders, and miracles, and don't forget the works. So, that's what we're doing this evening. We're going to be looking at signs, wonders, and miracles, and don't forget the works. And hopefully, you'll see how important those are as we go along. I became a Christian um, in the 70s in a church that was what we call cessationist. So in other words, they didn't believe that the gifts of the Spirit were for today. And although we were encouraged to pray for people for healing, I have to say it was more about that they would receive God's comfort than they'd actually be healed. And just occasionally, somebody would say that God had healed them. And although everyone was kind of happy about that, it was sort of treated really as a bit of an anomaly you know, kind of a very rare event where God in his infinite wisdom decided to do something very unusual and heal someone. And the problem with that was that it never led to any more because nobody ever had any expectation of any more. They were just kind of pleased that this one rare event happened, but it wasn't something that they would kind of get hold of and step onto and then look for the more. Signs, wonders, miracles are meant to change things. They're not meant to just be there and we all go, oh look, something happened and then that's the end of it. They're actually meant to be a stepping stone that we step on and we go on to the moor. And they have a greater significance than the act themselves. So when we see something like gold dust or feathers or anything else like that, you know, we can get very excited about it. But if it's just oh, wow, it's gold dust, it's feathers, and that's the end of it. We're missing something because there's a greater significance to signs and wonders than the actual act itself. When we had um, gold dust at NKCC before, my memory, and Kim might sort of remember this as well, but it was at a time when a lot was going on and we were beginning to uh, look to kind of where God was taking us. And i think that in that situation the gold dust was really a kind of sign of the move of god what god, that something was going to happen you know it was like here i am are you paying attention church are you going to look to what i'm going to do next but it's quite easy to just kind of get caught up with the oh gold dust and um, we were in a particular meeting and um, and i looked down to see that i'd got gold dust on my hands And, you know, that was the first time I'd seen anything like that. So all these thoughts were going through my head. You know, if I put my hand on some child's glitter somewhere, and then, you know, surreptitiously, can I kind of get it off my hand? And then um, after a sort of a while, it, it disappeared. And I thought, okay, so I was telling somebody at the end. I mean, obviously, people have been seeing it. But I was telling somebody at the end who hadn't actually seen gold dust. And saying, look, you know, I, I just held out my hands, and I was looking at my hands, and all of a sudden, gold dust appears. And I was actually telling him this, the gold dust came back onto my hands. Well, I'm thinking, wow, gold dust. And Honestly, it was just gold dust on my hand. I wasn't thinking, well, why? You know, what's God trying to say to me? And I think we are, as we're increasingly seeing more signs, wonders, and miracles, and I think we'll see greater signs, wonders, and miracles as we're stepping into what God's doing, we have to remember to keep going back to God and saying, what is the significance? What are you saying? What are you trying to show us? So I'm going to start by um, looking at a passage, a slightly un- perhaps unusual passage. Um, I'm going to actually read Matthew 12, 24, and then miss out, hello, do 38 to 42 initially. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Let me drop down to verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So... When God told me to preach on this passage, I'm thinking, uh, oh, why? Um, but actually, as I started to look at it, I started to think about it a bit more. See, Jesus isn't saying here that it's wrong to ask for a sign. And I have heard that preached. It's all about who he's talking to and why they're asking for signs. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And more than anyone else, they really should have understood what the miracles that Jesus did, what the significance of them was, what they pointed to. Now, when the people saw what Jesus did, when they saw him heal the man that was blind and restore his ability to speak, they were astonished. And their reaction was immediately, you know, who is this guy? You know, how can he do that? You know, is he the son of David? In other words, is he the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard the people saying those things, or maybe some of the people asked the Pharisees what they thought. They're meant to be the religious teachers. Their reaction was that actually the way that he healed was through the demonic, not through God at all, which was nice of them. And what did they do next? Well, they asked him for a a sign, which is a bit odd when you think about it, because he'd just given them a pretty amazing sign. You know, I don't think they would very often have seen somebody who could neither see nor speak completely set free, able to talk and able to see. So why are they asking him for a sign? What are they expecting? Can we just put the second passage up, please? If we look in Matthew 16, to 4 I think it helps to explain it. This is... Um, Another occasion when the Sadducees and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and and we read this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't normally get along. They had completely different ideas, and they were at odds with one another. But in this particular instance, they've banded together, and they've come to test Jesus. And it says that they asked him for a sign from heaven. And I wonder if that's the same kind of sign that actually was asked before in that first passage. Because, you see, in their tradition, a sign that was done on the earth, so, for example, if you cast out a demon or you healed a blind man or whatever, that could be counterfeit. That maybe didn't come from God. That came from somewhere else. But a sign from heaven, a sign that was done in the sky or came from the sky, so something like Elijah calling down fire, you remember that one, or in Isaiah, where the sort of sun kind of stops in its course. Those kind of signs were thought not to be counterfeit. So they've seen him do signs on the earth, and they're now saying, well, come on, men, show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus gives the same answer again. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. He told them that they can't interpret the signs of the times. And he starts to enlarge on that as he explains what the signs of Jonah mean. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now we know the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, and it was a huge city. Some people believe it was 60 miles across and would take three days for someone to kind of go across it, and that is a a massive, massive city for the time. So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to warn them that unless they change their ways, unless they kind of leave off their kind of wickedness, he's going to destroy Nineveh. And Jonah's not very keen on the idea, which um, isn't terribly surprising, because the Assyrians were known for being a bloodthirsty, warlike people who weren't um, very nice to their enemies. I, there's a, I found a lovely little passage which um, was written by one of the military commanders at the time. It says, he says this, I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads and made pyramids thereof. I slew one of every two. I built a wall before the great gates of the city. I flayed the chief men of the rebels and I covered the wall with their skins. I hope you are not squeamish, perhaps I should have warned you. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some of them were crucified on stakes along the wall. I caused a great multitude of them to be flayed in my presence and I covered the wall with their skins. I gather together the heads in the form of crowns and their pierced bodies in the form of garlands. So perhaps you understand why Jonah wasn't very keen on going to Nineveh. So Jonah takes the ship to escape God's plan and soon gets caught in a a storm. And when the sailors uh, say, you know, what's what's causing the storm why are we in this predicament and they draw lots and it it falls on Jonah and Jonah explains that it is probably his fault because he's been running away from God and the only kind of thing that's going to save him is if they throw him overboard Jonah gets thrown overboard he's swallowed by the great fish and spends three days and three nights in the body of the fish and then eventually is spat out onto dry land and then goes to Nineveh and preaches in effect repentance. And you know, we can see um, the obvious there, can't we? You know, the picture of Jesus who, was in the, who, was, um, who sacrificed himself who on the cross, who was in the ground for three days and who was raised to life. And the message is one of, of repentance. So you can see the link with what was going to happen to Jesus. But you see... Jesus knew that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not going to believe him, whatever sign he he did, whatever miracle that he did, because they'd already decided that he wasn't the Son of God. They'd already decided that he was just a man. And so there was nothing that he could do that would have changed their view. And so he says, when Jonah preached repentance... The Ninevites responded to that. And so at the day of judgment, they, they'll stand up and they'll condemn this generation because the Pharisees more than anyone else should have known who Jesus was from the signs that they saw. But although even the Ninevites repented, this generation, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who wouldn't, and those who wouldn't believe in him, they, they wouldn't, though Jesus was greater than Jonah. And he uses the second picture just to sort of emphasize of um, the, the Queen of Sheba, who was the Queen of the South. She would come to the, from the ends of the earth to lift, listen to Solomon's wisdom, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they wouldn't see God's wisdom in Jesus. And so they were, they were condemned because of that. They couldn't understand what those signs really meant. When Jesus did that miracle of healing, that man, it was amazing. And we know that that man and his family must have been overjoyed. Man that couldn't see, that couldn't speak, is healed. But actually, it was also a sign to the people of who Jesus was, who Jesus is. And it wasn't only about bringing wholeness and healing to that man himself. But it points to the fact that Jesus would bring spiritual healing and wholeness to everyone that believed in him. He could open the eyes of the blind spiritually as well as as, uh, physically. In John 6, 26, we, we've um, just had the story of the feeding of 5,000. And after the feeding of 5,000, some of the crowd come to find Jesus. And he says this, he says, very, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So again, the feeding of the 5,000 was a good thing. They were hungry, tired people. There was nothing wrong with the fact that he fed them. That was fantastic. But again, it pointed to something bigger. Because Jesus is the bread of life. And he brings eternal and abundant life. And some people were able to read the Signs of the Times and see beyond just the miracle to what it said about Jesus Himself. Signs, wonders and miracles alone very rarely convert people. So we see cancers healed here, we see tumours disappeared, um, you know, you could we haven't, but we could see someone raised from the dead. I think we are going to see that one day. Do you know, even someone being raised from the dead will not convince someone who's already decided that Jesus isn't the Son of God. They won't do it by themselves, but they are a pointer to who he is. So, do you want to see a sign and a wonder? Well, I can't create something out of nothing, I'm afraid. Only God can do that. Um, So, if he wants to send feathers or something, that's fine. But I can show you something. About I guess 18 months, two years ago, I was. I mean, I won't say which church it was because I won't expose them. This goes out all over everywhere. But um, I went up to a church in the north of England, a particular thing that I was doing, and um, it took a little while to suddenly notice that all around the building, on the walls, were two pence, one pence. I think there's a five p. There coins, and they were just kind of stuck in different places on the walls. So. I kind of thought it was a bit odd. And um, I have to say, this is a very, very poor area. And they are an amazing church who are small, but doing something amazing in a very poor area. So I said to um, the leader's wife, why have you got coins stuck on your wall? So she said to me, okay, well, she said, go and take one off. So I'm like, right. So I went up, kind of just, you know, flicked at this little coin, and it fell on the floor. Right. Right. So she said, pick it up and stick it back. So I'm okay. <laughs> so I pick up the coin, put it on the wall, let go, it falls straight to the floor. So she's gone and do it again. So I pick it up, put it on the wall, let go, it falls to the floor. So then she says, okay, pick it up. This time, when you put it on the wall, say stick in Jesus name. You're a real idiot, don't you? So, okay, so I get down, I pick up this, this coin. Put it on the wall and go, stick in Jesus' name. I take my hand away and the coin stays stuck to the wall. So I'm like, what? (laughs) So I'm like, well, why? (laughs) What? And she says, I don't know. She said, we just say it's a sign that makes you wonder. So... (laughs) So I started to kind of ask a few more questions and talk to some other people. And actually, it's quite funny because some other people have got in on this. And you saw these people sort of shifty, getting coins and going, stick in Jesus' name. (laughs) And it wasn't just in one place. It was actually in different places around the building. But, see, the thing is, um, one of the girls there, one of the young women, she had gone into school and told her physics teacher about this. And (laughs) so her physics teacher says, well, there must be... um, Something magnetic about the wall, or there must be something funny about the paint, or there must be. See, a sign and a wonder doesn't make anyone believe who doesn't. Yeah. So this girl come, came back and said, teenager, and said, "Well, you know, my physics teacher says there must be something about the walls." And apparently, a rather lovely lady who comes from about the worst road in the area, as you know, very kind of uh, simple soul in many ways. She, put, she goes, "I'm not. I can't do. I can't do um, a northern accent. So forgive me. I'm not having that." She puts her hand in the bag. She gets her purse out. She takes a five-pound note out. She puts it on the wall and says, stick in Jesus' name. And guess what? It's stuck. But you see, I think it does point to something. I mean, I, I shared this with Elise Wife. I think it points to the fact that God is a provider in a place of poverty and they've seen God provide in many, many ways. You know, they've seen uh, a young lady from, again, just about the worst road in the area, where no one's ever gone to university, where there were all sorts of um, issues with health, that they, they seem to have more deaths in that road. They were actually praying against that. This young woman, the first, the first girl in that area ever to get to university, went to university. I know that they have started uh, things there where um, they've actually employed people that have not had any employment, and then kind of launch them into into work. They've bought houses so that they can be good landlords and provide cheap accommodation for people that struggle. I think God is saying something here. God is the provider. And those simple coins on the wall point to something bigger than the fact that the things just stick to the wall. So that is a genuine sign and wonder. Okay. Oh, and um, the other thing I was going to say about that is They know who it points to. Do you want to do the next one? Someone was having fun. Do you see that? It's not under zero. It's a C. It actually says JC. That somebody had kind of put the coins into that and it stuck as as JC. So they they know who those signs point to. Okay. All right. So just just thinking um, about the words themselves. What What is a miracle? What does it mean? Well, our word for miracle doesn't really exist um, in the New Testament. I mean, it actually just comes from a Latin word, miraculum, and it just meant, you know, a wonder, didn't, anything that was a wonder. It didn't need to be supernatural or anything else. But there are actually four words in the New Testament that gets, get variously translated as um, signs, wonders, and miracles, and then I'm going to add works to that as well. And so we're going to have a look at them. There's there's one verse I found, Hebrews 2, 4, where you get three of them together. And it says this, it says, God also testified to it, that's salvation, God also testified to salvation by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So let's have a look at those signs, wonders, and various miracles, and then we'll, we'll worry about works after that. So the word you get that gets translated signs is semayon. And we've already seen that because that was in the passage and we read about Jesus. And it literally means a sign, a mark, or a token. And it usually denotes divine authority. So as we said, the, the signs that Jesus did pointed to his supernatural divine authority. Then signs are not just valuable for what they are, but for what they point to. The word's used 77 times in the New Testament, and it isn't just associated with Jesus, but also with the apostles, which is important. Because in the book of Acts, we see very often it talks about signs and wonders following the apostles. They did signs and wonders. And so it, um, it kind of showed that they also carried divine authority, and if you like, it validated what they were saying. It validated their testimony of Jesus. So those signs, as they followed the disciples, as they did signs and wonders, they still pointed to where it came from. They still pointed to Jesus being the Son of God. The word um, wonders, that's the word teras, and it, it literally means the kind of miracle that makes you catch your breath, something that stays with you. So I don't know how many of us have seen that many wonders. I mean, I I think something like seeing the angels in the sky at Jesus' birth, singing glory to God in the highest. I mean, I think that would be quite a wonder. And I don't think I I would forget that. And the thing about wonders is you never find them on their own. They always come in pairs. You always find wonders with signs. So it's always signs and wonders. You can get signs without wonders, but you can't get wonders without signs. And again, um, uh, we see it in Acts associated with the apostles. Then we, um, we get to the word that in Hebrews 2 was translated miracles. And that's the word dunamis, which is maybe one people know. And it's sometimes translated miracles, sometimes power, and sometimes mighty works. So, um, for example, um, dunamis um, is the word that is used when it talks about the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And in, in the Gospels, normally dunamis is associated with the power that Jesus used, if you like, his ability to do miracles. It's almost how he does them, if you like. It tells you something about um, his ability to do a miracle rather than his kind of um, authority to do a miracle and then the last one that's that's in the New Testament um, 119 times and the last one I want to mention is the one I mentioned before which was not forgetting the works and the, the word for works is ergon and it means that which is natural or normal to God and I think that actually this is the most important one for us in John 10 25 Jesus is speaking to the Jews who ask him to tell them if he's the Messiah and he says this he says I did tell you but you do not believe the works the ergon the works I do in my father's name testify about me and that word is used the most out of the four it's used 169 times in the New Testament and it's used by Jesus to describe the works that he does that no one else has done the works that point to his divine power and authority and the other thing about Ergon is that it's active. It's an active word for work. Um, Jesus, uh, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, he upset the religious leaders. And he says this, he said, My father is working until now, and I am working. God is proactive. God is working supernaturally on behalf of his children. John 14:12. Very truly, I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Works have a purpose and the Bible tells us that we were created to do good works. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what are the works that he's prepared for us to do? See, I think sometimes when we think about works, we almost think about the kind of, you know, good deeds that we do. So it might be, you know, setting up a food bank or, um, I don't know, uh, helping somebody who's who's sick by kind of going and getting shopping for them or uh, an act of kindness. We tend to think of lots of things like that that we do. But, you know... Although those things are good and right, and I'm not saying you shouldn't you know, help old ladies across the road or whatever it is, of course you should. But those aren't really the, the works that Jesus did, I think, that he's talking about here. He's talking about the greater works that Jesus did. We were created to do those greater works. Jesus said we would do greater works. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, and that's Ergon again, your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. So when someone sees those good works, those greater works, they point to heaven. They point to the Father in heaven. The greater works we do are to point people to heaven as heaven invades earth through the outworking of his mighty power in us, you and me, his sons and his daughters. So he outworks that power through us to bring heaven to earth. So you're still with me? Yeah. Just think about that for a minute because here's the application to that really. God is proactive, working supernaturally on behalf of his children. Works have a purpose, We were created to do good works. The greater works we do are to point people to heaven as heaven invades earth through the outworking of his mighty power through us, you and me, his sons and his daughters. You and I are the greatest sign, wonder, miracle and work of God. Now I haven't got time. You could do an entire Bible study on that. Go through the Bible for the verses that show that. But even if you just think that we're created in his image and that when we were born again, we became new creations, we are a sign, a wonder, a miracle, and a work of of God. In Isaiah, Isaiah said that he and his children were signs and symbols to Israel. And we are signs and symbols for this generation. The trouble is, we don't always know it. We don't know what we're capable of. Paul Mannering at the um, European Leaders' Advance recently, he said that 2,000 years ago, God gave the church an iPhone, but we only use it to make 999 calls. And, you know, I just thought that was amazing. Because, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it spoke to me because I'm rubbish when it comes to technology. And um, my kids just laugh at me all the time because I'm constantly waving my phone under their nose or waving my laptop under their nose and saying help, I can't make it work, or it's gone wrong, um, or there's a problem. My 24-year-old usually says, yes, mum, it's a software problem, and he means me. <laughs> um, and then they kind of fix it for me, and I'm happy. But one of the things he used to say to me was, well, just try it out, just play with it. When I play with the computer, disaster. <laughs> you know, he can play with the computer and doesn't lose everything. I play with the computer and lose the lot, so, so I'm, you know, I don't like playing with it because I'm afraid of the mess that I am going to make, and um, I, and I don't really know what I've got. I was in the office the other day, and uh, since I've been employed by the church, I've had to, I've had to get to grips with a few more things on my computer, and on my laptop. And um, I, I'd sent an email previously, and I wanted to sort of send it again to remind people. So I'm sitting there saying out loud. Do I have to copy this, or can I just send it again? And as I was kind of clicking, I suddenly saw this little clue. It said, send again on the email. Ah, oh, press that. So, <laughs> so I'm kind of learning. And, of course, um, I've also got the iPhone, because I have. I might not know how to work it, but I have all the technology. Um, and this, I was quite interested in, in this. I'm just going to try something out. We'll see if it works. If I can remember my number to get in, it might work. <laughs> okay. You thought I was joking, didn't you? Alright. Alright, let's just try something. Siri, who created you? Like it says on the box. I'm designed by Apple in California. Did anyone hear that? Yeah. Yeah, he said like I said on the box, I was designed by Apple in California. Let's try try something else, shall we? Siri, who are you? enough about me. How can I help you? I'm Siri, but enough about me. How can I help you? Just call one more. Siri, what's your purpose? I'm here to help. Just ask. What can I say? I'll show you what I get. I'm here to help. Just ask. What can I say? And I'll show you what to do. See, even my phone knows who created it, who it is, and what its purpose is. (laughs) question is, do I and do you? <laughs> okay. Oh, dear. Anyway, so, you know, what do we do with miracles? You see, you can do two things when it comes to miracles, whatever sort they are, whether they're dunamis, semi you know, whatever. Um, you can either say, wow, did you see that glory cloud on the internet in Bethel? Wow, did you see the gold dust at NKCC, Eastgate? Wow, did you see those coins stuck on the wall in the church in the north of England? And you can enjoy the spectacle and you can enjoy telling people about it and you can enjoy the testimony or you can take hold of the testimony and you can start to live like you believe that you can do greater works than Jesus. That you can bring heaven to earth through the way that you connect with him and the way that you allow him to work through you. I'm preaching to myself here because it's easier to walk by the person sitting on the street in London than stop and say, can I pray for you? Or I believe God's got a word for you. It's easier to do that. It's easier to um, only pray for people that are in church that I know well that are not going to mind or say something rude to me or um, if they don't get healed, well, that's okay. But if I pray for someone outside and they don't get healed, is that going to make even more of a mess? Am I going to cause even more of a problem? I'm, I'm making these things up. I have my own set of issues with this stuff and I'm sure that some of you do as well. But I need to start to learn what I have, and I need to stop being afraid of failure, and I need to stop being afraid of making a mess, and I need to go out there and start taking some risks. See, this morning Mark Henley spoke on leaving a legacy, and it was a very good preach, so if you haven't heard it, I um, I would really recommend you listen to it online the early apostles left the next generation a legacy because they modelled faith, authority, love, sacrifice power, strength, mighty works and on and on and on but somewhere in church history we lost some of that we inherited to some extent a legacy of powerlessness, when I became a Christian in that cessationist church I, I I felt pretty powerless really but you know God is calling his church in this generation to take back all that has been lost, to start to believe in who they are, in the authority that he's given them, in the fact that they're called to do greater works, and pick up that baton and start to run with it and start to model it to the next generation so the next generation can stand on our shoulders and do even more than we are able to do. We need to start to walk in power and authority, in faith and love again. We need to be the people that will bring heaven to earth. We can have a vision, a 40-year vision, that says it's going to look like heaven on earth, but if each one of us is not prepared to step into that, to take those risks, and allow God to bring his power back into the church, then it's never going to happen. Last question, and then I'm done. What are you expecting? Danny Silk says that there's a difference in living in expectancy, sorry, the difference between living in expectancy and putting God in a box with our expectations. There's a difference between expectancy and expectations. You see, If we don't live in expectancy, then our expectations of God will put him into a box and it will create a lack in our lives and the lives of others because my expectations are never going to be big enough because whatever I can come up with, I promise you, God is a lot bigger than that. And I don't want those limits in my life. If we dump our expectations and start to live in the expectancy that God is going to do what God does, then we start to believe that things can change, that we can transform our workplace, our neighbourhood, our school, playground, our mother and toddler group, whatever it is. And that's the challenge that I just want to leave with you really tonight, that you let go of your expectations of God and yourself... And you start living in the expectancy of what God is going to do through you.